0: Sixty degrees, hot, hot, three hundred and sixty degrees, hot, hot, three hundred and six, three hundred and six, three hundred and sixty degrees, hot, hot.
1: Welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by apprentices of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. This show is written, produced, and engineered in Wu occupied Ohlone territory, a.k.a. the East Bay Area. As time moves toward the end of this 2022 May, we at First Voice honor and share memories of our community who have Asian and Pacific Island roots. Tonight, we share just some of the stories our API colleagues have produced. We'll hear about a storytelling group, the Farm Workers Movement, John Trudell, services for youth, services for the departed, all that and more, plus some wonderful music. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to Full Circle. We're living in the aftermath of hate and discrimination fomented by the 45th President of the United States and his administration, rife with racism that still taints this country. In listening to the stories brought to us from the many ethnicities who've been a part of the First Voice Apprenticeship program and remembering our shared joys, challenges, game nights, and production accomplishments, I'm so proud to be a part of this program that helps to fulfill one of the tenets from the original mission of the Pacifica Foundation, that mission being to engage in any activity that shall contribute to a lasting understanding between nations and between the individuals of all nations, races, creeds, and colors community building. Our first offering tonight is from Rangita, aka Renee Giesler, who is one of the founding parents of Full Circle. She brings us a feature about the storytelling group Ethnotech.
2: Once upon a time, a long
3: time ago, and far, far away. These are the words that invite you into the magic of stories.
4: Nancy Wong and Robert Kikuchi and Goho have been telling stories for the last 25 years. They are the founders of Ethnotech. Asian American Storytelling Theater in San Francisco. Ethnotech performs throughout the United States and abroad with several storytelling theater programs. They have seen the powerful impact that storytelling can have.
2: These words, once upon a time, have been heard you know, in some person's life somewhere along the route. And when they, when they hear it, it's like they get this look that's just magical. What I like about it is seeing the audience just go through like casting a spell. And then, of course, with storytelling, it touches heart. It creates a community of listening. And so it's got all the great things about art that that touch people.
4: Ethnotech's mission is to build cultural bridges that celebrate our humanity, embrace our differences, and create compassionate communities through the performance of Asian and Asian American stories that touch upon our universal truths. Robert says that storytelling is often misunderstood. It's not just for children, but for people young and old.
2: There have been storytelling traditions in all cultures around the world for thousands of years, and some are still very active and very live today. For adults, there are very sophisticated uh, myths and and folktales.
3: Our stories are usually very value-oriented, so it touches their heart. It touches their imagination. And it touches where they are in life right now, even though these stories are ancient. But that's why they've lasted this long, because they are so important. They have something to say and to convey. And stories would often imitate what was going on in the government, but using metaphor instead. And so even though the story might sound like it's about monkeys or about a fool... You know, a trickster. It was actually about the czar or about, you know, your governor
5: or something like that. Or the kink or the president.
3: (laughs) And now, from Tibet, an ancient story that has lots of... Relevancy for now. Indeed. And we call this story... Monkey Monkey Moon. Moon.
2: Namo Namo mo Once a golden full moon shone upon
3: a beautiful forest with a beautiful pond. The pond was so smooth, so crystal clear that the water's surface was like a big bright mirror.
2: Now near this pond stood a towering tree, and that was the home of a band of Oop.
3: monkeys. monkeys. Chicha chitri chiche. And from high in the branches to the pond below, they looked and they saw something aglow. Look, down there, a golden moon. I want it. I want it. The monkeys croon. The moon, the moon. They screeched with glee. When suddenly a voice said,
2: It's not for you. It's
3: meant for me. Who? Hmm? It was their monkey chief, their almighty king, who ruled over these monkeys and
2: everything. That golden moon is mine alone, and I command this from my golden throne. I want it now, not later, not soon. Go get it for me. Go
3: fetch that moon. So uh, the monkeys lined up in numerical fashion, hailed their chief oh. with patriotic passion. We'll, we'll fetch, fetch the moon, moon for you, dear, dear chief. chief. If that's what you want, we'll be your, be your thief. Thieves.
2: So one at a time, down a long, thin branch, each single monkey took a chance.
3: Each stretched to fetch that golden disk... Oh, but each failed, though each monkey put his own life at risk. For the tree
2: was quite tall and the pond far below, a difficult task for any monkey, you know. The chief, now anguished and paled, jumped up and commanded, Grab hand to tail.
3: Oh, hand, oh, hand to, to tail, tail. chee-chee-chee-chee. They saluted their chief. Oh. Hand to tail it, it shall be. be.
2: So the first one climbed out on the limb And the second one followed after him The third and the fourth were right behind And so on and so forth down the line Hand, hand to, to tail, chi 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 Hand to tail, hand, tail, hand to tail shall be
3: And when not a single monkey remained They cheered, look, we've made a monkey chi chain
2: Now the monkey at the bottom of that monkey chain With all her might She stretched and strained She reached for that moon in the shining pool But when she failed to reach it the chief cried, You fool! All of you are fools! You failed all night! Do I have to do it myself to get it done right?
3: Oh, down, down the chain he climbed, As each monkey chattered and chimed, Hand to, to tell, tail, hand to tail, The, the chief, chief is coming, the monkeys hailed.
2: Ah, the moon in the water was so golden and bright That the king's eyes glowed golden with greedy delight. With
3: the moon in my hands, I'll be the emperor of the night. So, this very fat chap of a chief did reach. He stretched and he strained a magnificent feat. The monkeys cheered their big chief on as he bumped up and down toward that moon in the pond.
6: When,
2: when suddenly above them was the tiniest of sounds, snap, and when the monkeys looked up... Oh, The branch went
3: crack. Down, 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 monkeys tumbling into the pool. These loyal little monkeys and their majesty, the fool. Splash went the king
2: in his royal chain of commands. As a thousand little moons rippled through their dripping hands.
3: The king uttered
2: not a word.
3: His wet head bowed. His dripping crown shining before his dampened crown. All the other monkeys looked up and howled as a mocking golden moon slipped behind a silver cloud.
6: Now
2: it's more than all right to reach for the moon or to climb out on a limb.
3: But to follow a foolish leader is to follow to a foolish End. Chit chat chit chit, the, the end.
4: end. <laughs> Ethnotech performs Pan Asian and Asian American stories spanning West, Central, South, and Southeast Asia, including Iraq, Afghanistan, India, Nepal, Bhutan, China, Japan, and Korea, Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand and Indonesia. They view Asian American storytelling as an interweaving of the East and West.
1: Thank you, Rain. Rainjita was also co-training director of First Voice for many years. She and Shana Lancaster, another First Voice graduate, co founded Mamacitas, an Oakland based mobile food and catering service, whose mission was to extend leadership and employment opportunities to young women of color. Unfortunately, Mamacitas was a victim of the COVID pandemic. Rangita and Jenna Hota co-founded Apex Express, which airs here on KPFA on Thursdays at 7 p.m. It's dedicated to API issues. Jenna was also one of our first voice elders. She was in Group 3, NOVA. Now let's hear her offering, Delano, which tells of the emerging farm workers' movement. Well, Do going
7: we back up? to still Agbayani you know, Village still was really a movement back to a time when yeah. the United Farm Workers yeah. Movement was fighting for States farm Union. workers' rights in the field yeah. of California, yeah, right. and okay. a great part yeah. of that was yeah. the Monongs, or first-generation Filipino so, immigrants. Oh, yeah.
8: It was like uh, folks from all these different community groups as well as individuals. You know, there was a real movement back then just to volunteer and help, help not only the Manongs but, you know, people like the United Farm Workers. And I remember they got a lot of us to walk the picket line. And,
7: uh, so a lot of Asian American students so from all over joined them to build a village for these up, Monongs you know, us, kind of to you know, help them uh, live better as farm we workers, workers we people, to I, to I mean it's a hard, uh, back-breaking life.
8: A uh, visit, visit with many of the old-timers, because I mean that was the main thing, you know, just just getting to know these old, old-timers, old right? The early times we were here, we would we would work up on the roof and just donate our labor to make this place a home. And it was it was a good feeling, right?
7: What did it look like before? What did you guys oh, put up?
8: Uh, well, like even here, just the brick and the wood, whatever we needed to do, you know, because all of the labor was volunteered, you know, donated. And there were like carpenters and unions, whole unions that would come down during the weekend, like the electricians and plumbers and stuff to put it all together, you know.
7: Was this your first time to really talk to some of the uh, Monong farm workers who... They were who instrumental in starting that whole farm workers movement. The earliest Asian immigrants to, to the United States were 18, 19, primarily so agricultural workers. They were brought the over almost in servitude in, uh, to work on the plantations and, and the fields. Near, and one of the places they ended up in is Delano, right story, here in the heart of the California Valley.
8: I think there was a real bond between the the people who lived here and the volunteers who came.
7: Mm-hmm. Talking here with Lou it, and being uh, with folks who've been like around for a while yeah. like Norman Gio and yeah. uh, poet Al Robles is that, you know, most of our lives, our generation has been spent trying to fight a lot of these things that Asian immigrants have faced. Back then, uh, you couldn't become citizens if you were Asian. You couldn't own land. You couldn't marry whites. You couldn't even bring over your own from the old countries. What was out there in the fields when you guys came down?
8: This is all mostly grapes. For a lot of people, it was the first uh, time to see um, kind of
7: the history of our parents and our grandparents, what they might have gone through, and to understand how uh, difficult that life must have been and that these folks who work with very little credit uh, are the backbone of the wealth of California. Look at that picture over there. Does that look familiar? Yeah, look at everyone.
8: That's Philip Veracruz. Oh, Philip
7: Veracruz, wow, yeah, yeah. He was one of the instigators of the farm workers movement there.
8: I remember this guy. I forget his name. There was a guy who looked like Mao. That might be him. We used to call him Mao. Up by this is a guy. Yeah, he was a guy a who, farm who died, the farm workers. died during a, in a picket line fighting against, fighting for, against the, farm for the farm workers, yeah. Um, pa- Pablo. By, I, farm think farm Pablo. By, I think Pablo. But there was another guy also that should be recognized. His name was Larry Itliong. And uh, he was actually the, the president of the Filipino Farm Workers. And they started the strike before uh, Cesar Chavez and United Farm Workers, you know, and they're, they're giving credit. And he gives credit to them also for, like the Chicanos joined the strike after the Filipino Farm Workers started, started it. So it was Larry Itliong and Philip Veracruz.
7: um, These watercolors look like somebody, Louis Suzuki's. Yeah, yeah,
8: yeah. Did he
7: come? I mean, going through the Agbayani village, I see photos and and memorabilia and things that I recognize. uh, I mean, friends are in these photos, and there's plaques on the wall, recognizing people who constructed, helped construct Agbayani village. There are donations of beautiful watercolor paintings here. Oh, look at all the volunteers' names. That is. There are so many people. I don't think my name is there.
8: You... Oh, oh yeah,
7: there you are. Oh, there's Terry Batista's name. Yeah, Terry's there's there. Terry's name. Yeah, and her brother, yeah. Janice Sakamoto.
8: Yeah, do you remember her?
7: Uh, she was um, very one of the founders, and people made it happen. Oh, Jenny Moore. So this place still holds a lot of important uh, things from the past, from and a lot of people today like are still working it, on community issues.
1: Thank you, Jenna, for that historical perspective. You're listening to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. And our station is at a critical point in the Spring Fun Drive. If you're a consistent listener to KPFA, you know that the station's projected goal is currently distant. So we need your help and support. Hatred keeps raising its violent face and fist while KPFA continues to struggle for peace and community building. Please do what you can to help us with the donation of any amount. To donate, you can go to kpfa.org and click on the Donate button, or call 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-439-5732. Or donate online at kpfa.org. And now, a little music.
0: Just be, inhale, exhale, breathe. Don't try to be, just be, inhale, exhale, breathe. I believe in miracles. I believe in a greater world. I believe in good things, and it starts with me. I, I sing my feelings, still know how to breathe. Sometimes they treat me separate from society. Some days it's hard to get a hold. Inspiration's what it takes, and I got enough. Building faith in community. Just be inhale, exhale, breathe. Don't try to be just be inhale, exhale, breathe. I praise high, bow down low. I keep it humble, cause I'm always on the real yo. Pass down knowledge and that's just to the sea. I I refuse your stupidity, free. I was born free and free, I will be Your oppression is infinity My impression is humanity
1: Welcome back. That music was from Aisha Fukushima singing her composition, Breathe. We've had the pleasure of hosting Aisha in our APFA performance studio. She's a very talented woman. Now let's hear from John Watanabe, one of my mentors. John was a very caring person who had a deep appreciation for music. He helped me in my journey to learn engineering of live music performance. In this piece, he interviews Native American activist John Trudell.
9: The Native American culture is known for respecting its elders and you've now been an activist for a long time. Can you tell us how the passage of time has affected your outlook on life? I'm
10: coming to understand that our life is maybe like seasons. You know we're born and we're small children and that's a season. We become young adults and that's a season. We become adults, that's a season. And as we start to age we become elders and that's another season so it's like a living lesson so we live our lives and we have experiences and we have these experiences the experiences we have we were given intelligence as human beings so with this intelligence we're supposed to learn from our experiences and this is how we accumulate knowledge if we learn from our experiences we will accumulate knowledge and then as we accumulate knowledge then the next thing is to understand the knowledge that we've accumulated And I think that we should live our lives non-judgmentally. I don't think we have the right nor the responsibility to judge, but I do think we have the responsibility to recognize. We need to recognize the lives that we've lived. We need to recognize the reality that we're in, not judge it, because when we're judging it, we can't recognize it. We can't see it clearly because we're judging it. It's already tainted by the judgment. We need to be able to recognize the lives that we live, recognize ourselves. No judgment. Recognize, and, and in our recognition, if there are things in there we don't like or can't handle, because we recognize it, we can put it away. So I find that life is, as we go through our life, first we have the questions, then we'll have answers, but I think we will, we will be synchronized when we understand the answers that we have, understand what we know. It's understanding. The more, I just more and more think that, that the objective of life, that the, the goal in life is, to, is about reaching understanding. If we can attain understanding, I think we can balance many aspects of our lives, individually,
9: collectively. In many communities, there seems to be a sense of powerlessness. Do you have any suggestions for how we can deal with that sense of powerlessness? To deal with the sense of powerlessness, I think that
10: we as individuals have to look inward to ourselves and recognize ourselves. I think that, you know, we have to recognize that we're human beings and what it means to be a human being, what a human being's relationship is to life and universe. I think we must recognize these selves these things about ourselves, within ourselves, before we can truly start to overcome the sense of powerlessness. Because I think the sense of powerlessness has to be overcome one individual at a time. And I think as one individual at a time starts to overcome the sense of powerlessness, it has, a, it has this collective effect of helping others. But I, I think it comes back. It's We must know ourselves. We must understand who we are and what our abilities are. We, we have to be real to ourselves. And when we're real to ourselves, we, we would understand what power really is. See, we don't have a clear understanding what power is. We've been programmed to believe that the more money we get, the more powerful we become. But that's not true. I mean, the more money we get, that gives us access to authority. We've been programmed to believe that to have the strongest military makes you the most powerful. But that's not true. What that having a strong military does is give you access to authority. See, and there's a difference between authority and power. And we need to understand that there's a difference between authority and power. But as long as we believe authority is power, then we're never going to understand ourselves in relationship to power. So there's a whole lot of thinking, all right, that's going ha- that has to go on before we're going to ever effectively deal with this pervasive sense of powerlessness. We, we have to think. There's a lot of thinking that we have to do. We have to use our intelligence and activate the power of our intelligence in order to have certain recognitions. The recognition of power but we live in an authoritarian system you know George Bush is not a powerful man he's a man in a position of authority and there is a difference power is something that is in us truly powerful people don't need to impose authority that reality of power works on respect in a way to me the absence of power works on authority
9: how important do you think non-corporate community media is these days John I think that
10: non-corporate community media is the last, what I would say, free voice of the people. Because whatever goes on within grassroots and community media, this is coming straight directly from the people. It expresses the feelings and concerns and questions and observations of the people themselves. And I think that maybe in America, other than maybe some small town newspapers a few places, that this is really the only venue we have left to be able to speak and communicate in this country. All the other media is just basically there to serve corporate need, not community.
9: Do you think that one of the objectives of the corporate media is to divide us? I think that dividing the population,
10: an oppressor's division of the population, is. I think that's just that's just how it works. And because when you look just in a larger picture, there's been every aspect. Of this population has been divided in one way or another so when community radio starts to emerge and evolve and it's representing the voices of the people then someone's going to try to manipulate division amongst these people too it's just it's the way it seems to be the way the system operates and it's up to us to understand that it operates that way so that we can resolve our differences more
9: coherently do you have a short poem you could share with us
10: Uh, (laughs) Uh, let me think here a minute I have to think about this off the top of my head putting a face on God divine madness these wars between evil even good has to hide the wrath of the righteous awakening a dormant mean dirty calling itself clean when an extreme is right an extreme is left with all this hate going around Rage has no time to rest. More than thousands dies when pain comes from the skies. Debris of Palestine and Wall Street. We are all the innocent, some more than others. But we are all the innocent, while to the gods of war, we're just a way of keeping score. And with gods on everybody's side, spirit knows hard time is coming. Earth dreads the waiting blood, while death makes a list. Who would have ever thought virtual reality would come to this? And that's from Face on God.
9: From the Grassroots Radio Conference, this is John Watanabe for Full Circle.
1: Thank you, John, and rest in peace. Now First Voice graduate Robin Takahama shares a piece about Lyric, an organization
5: providing services to queer youth. A lavender house is nestled on a side street of San Francisco's Castro District. This three-story Victorian is the home to Lyric, a community center for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and questioning youth. I'm on the third floor waiting to meet an 18-year-old Lyric youth who asks to be called Louie. Someone encouraged him to respond to my flyer recruiting queer male survivors of child sexual abuse for this piece. Thirty minutes later, the workshop downstairs wraps up, and Louie is a no-show. James Gay is Lyric's clinical case manager. He says it's common for queer men to have difficulties talking about their experience surviving childhood sexual abuse, or CSA.
11: A lot of times in our culture we're brought up as men and, and as young men to believe that we're supposed to be self-reliant, that we're not allowed to be victims. And I think one of the things that's, you know, particularly difficult for young queer men in coming forward and talking about sexual abuse is not only that social context, but also um, it can, you know, bring into question their own sexual orientation and identity and how that was developed.
7: We... I think in general have learned to think of intimate
5: violence issues as personal instead of public. Stacey Haynes is the founder of Generation 5. So we'll talk about state violence, we'll talk about community violence, but supposedly the intimate violence is what we shouldn't talk about, don't, don't spread the dirty laundry, you know, that kind of thing. Generation Five's mission is to end the sexual abuse of children in five generations, or 125 years. And we have it mapped out that way because it's a um, pervasive issue.
4: And just like if we look at other issues of oppression, whether it's racism, sexism, those
7: take kind of long-term strategic movements to actually change something so rooted in a social system.
5: One of Generation Five's strategies is to train and support organizers and community leaders to take on CSA within their communities. Mercedes Gibson is a youth activist from a low-income community in East Oakland. This multiracial, self-proclaimed lesbian says she's passionate about working on women's issues. When she discovered Generation Five, she committed to the nine-month training
12: beforehand you know I was ignorant I just was like oh it's 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 you know tragic that it happened and I had a picture of a specific population it happens to to rich people to poor people only to single mother families so it just shatters all those beliefs and you basically the first part of the training is learning that is being like forget everything you thought you knew about child sexual abuse. Then it talks about the different aspects. It talks about not only identifying us as a survivor instead of a victim, but working with
5: survivors and working with offenders. And then um, you get into work groups. For Mercedes' work group, she held a special training for volunteers on Lyric's youth talk line, the only peer-run queer youth hotline in the country. She guided call takers on how to support a caller who discloses being sexually abused.
11: One of the stereotypes that people believe about child sexual abuse and sexual orientation is that sexual abuse causes someone to be queer.
5: Again, James Gay.
11: It's really important to remember that there are straight, gay, bisexual, transgender, there's multiple individuals that have been sexually abused that the the child sexual abuse in and of itself didn't cause that.
5: Conversely, James says queer youth tend to believe they are the cause of their abuse. He says queer youth don't have the same opportunities as their straight peers to explore their sexuality through dating or the prom.
11: And so many times they go into environments or, um, where they're more likely to be abused. So that can be going into public restrooms or, you know, going to bars under age.
5: Malkia Cyril, a 30-year-old survivor, was just 13 when she came out of the closet.
12: As a queer youth, you're not supposed to say you're gay anyway, much less say that the relationship that you're in feels abusive because by the nature of it being queer, societal standards have already labeled it as wrong. So there's just a very unclear line between what's wrong because the society says it's wrong and what's wrong because it's abusive and violating.
5: Malkia is a working-class Brooklyn native and the daughter of a Black Panther. For the past nine years, she has been organizing for racial and economic justice in the San Francisco Bay Area and co-founded a national media justice network. But until recently, she could critically identify and fight against all kinds of injustice, except for the personal one committed against her.
12: So the first time I really recognized that child sexual abuse was was in my history, was actually related to the failure of a relationship. And I think that that happens for a lot of people, that it's often as an adult, when things begin to fall apart and things aren't working the way you think they're supposed to work, that I began to realize that there were very simple things I didn't seem to know how to do.
5: Malkia attributes these difficulties to a lack of queer role models. No one taught her how to be in a relationship or how to constructively confront homophobia. But she says other interpersonal problems stemmed from survival skills she learned from being violated.
12: I believe that um, when children have their right to say no taken from them, they learn to accommodate or violate, you know, violate others or violate themselves and that's the way children learn how to survive, to hide or to dominate, and I learned to do both. So it makes it a very complex experience, but um, also one with a lot of insight, I think, that's very useful to our understanding of how violence works and how inequality fosters violent conditions and
5: violent people. And like Stacy with Generation 5, Malkia offers solutions that are coming from someone directly impacted by the problem. One of these contributions is Phoenix Day, a monthly holiday Malkia created for anyone affected by intimate violence. People join together and treat themselves to fun board games and relaxing massages, to talking circles and good food. And in this supportive space, they empower themselves to share their stories and share in their healing. I'm Robin Takayama.
1: So nice to hear Robin, a.k.a. Nono Girl, who you can find on Instagram at nonogirlradio. And we have the link to Lyric on our kbfaapprentice.org website. Robin and Ringita were a part of the production team that won a Peabody Award for the series Moving East about Asian immigration to the United States. Now we'll hear a couple of commentaries. The first is from Antonio Ortiz, and it's followed by one
13: from Jen Lei. Let's compare cultural icons. Cavemen had their Fred and Wilma Flintstone, and spacemen have their George and Jane Jetson. Both are couples. Why do our single icons fall into the negative stereotype of being single? Gargamel was single, but crazy, and lived alone with his cat. Winnie the Pooh's friend Eeyore was also single, and most importantly, depressed. And lastly, our gay SpongeBob SquarePants is single, but demonized by many groups for his sexual preference. There are many forms of discrimination, and we are very literate to those pertaining to race, sex, gender, sexual preference, and disability. One that is so pervasive in our culture, but not universally recognized, is marital status. I've heard a story from a friend whose girlfriend had a second cousin twice removed who knew of a US soldier that was victim of such abuse. I swear this is true. This soldier stationed in Iraq was put in the back of the bus, so to speak, when it came to calling his loved ones in the States. The army gives priority to married soldiers, and once they finish their calls, singles are then allowed to contact loved ones. How nice! Even though our society promotes individuality, we give priority to the couple. I will give a critical analysis of the social and cultural bias toward the binary from prehistory to present day, with emphasis on 21st century corporate propaganda and governmental practices. This dissertation is best presented in a tiny list of things that make you go, hmm, thanks Arsenio Hall. Number one, the two for one coupon, alias, buy one get one free. Why not buy one for half price or buy one get two free? Number two, if you ever win tickets to a concert or event, they always give you two. Number 3. Think about cultural ceremonies. A friend informed me that the defining ceremony of singlehood is divorce, and that is seen as a negative. Number 4. What about taxes? If you're married, you get extra deductions. There are 86 million unmarried American adults in the United States, and we singles pretty much make up the majority. I know that married life is glorified here, and many like to tell you that some studies show that married people tend to live longer than their single counterparts. But do you ever really wonder if they include our nation's youth in these studies? When someone dies young, aren't they single by default, and doesn't that bring down the life expectancy of singles? So if you're single, take the streets, be aware, speak up, and don't be a victim of single discrimination. For Full Circle, this is Antonio Ortiz.
14: Ask me what I know about living in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, and I will tell you. It is visiting my brother in three different prisons along the length of California. It is my father sitting drunk in front of a muted television set, tired of hearing English all day. It is my mother beating my father because she is tired of being beaten. It is standing in my kitchen and hearing over the radio that Chai Vang, a Hmong American man, has been arrested for the shooting deaths of six Caucasian hunters And the wounding of two others. The aftermath of war just ripples on and on for years, that first violent moment of bombs and guns, followed by the quieter violence of displacement, relocation, and assimilation. And then one day you are part of a gang, or you get arrested for beating your wife, or you find yourself in the woods, confronted by a group of white men, and you decide not to walk away. You let that hard kernel of sadness in your body erupt into rage. The United States exists in a perpetual aftermath of war. In between the fighting, the dead and the living alike are buried beneath terms like democracy, victory, stability, and peace. Trauma, despair, and depression are neatly woven away into the fabric of society. People who cannot and do not adjust are quietly disappeared. The violence of war always continues long after the war itself. Families and whole communities reside in its shadow. When we talk about gangs, domestic violence, drug abuse, alcoholism, unemployment, or homelessness, we are often talking about war. We are talking about the long-term repercussions of state violence on people's lives. We are talking about a country and a government that is unwilling to be held accountable to the lives it has damaged. Let us be committed to following the trajectory of war, that bullet that spirals on year after year. Let us not be fooled by the government's rhetoric that peace is a given condition after war. Let us keep the trauma, the loss, the despair at the surface of our society, an open wound that we must acknowledge if we are to even consider the possibility of healing.
1: Thank you both. Antonio is now KPFA's operations manager. Jin Lei now lives in the Northwest. She was a First Voice fellow when we had the blessing of providing one-year fellowships to First Voice graduates. Those fellowships helped the graduate to grow in an experience and provided the first voice program with valuable support in producing Full Circle. Now, first voice graduate Niku Desi takes us on a musical roller coaster ride.
15: I like to find company for my moods in the music that I hear. When I'm in a sad and brooding mood, I look to the bard Leonard Cohen for company. And we're still.
6: Making love In my secret life. I smile when I'm angry
15: There are times I feel more fire in my feet. It's then that I turn to Zecca Bailero, here with a song titled Filio da Abella. Sometimes the fire that burns in my feet has a more Punjabi flavor. Then I'll throw on some pangra, for example, Hatti Mirasati by Michael Angel. My spirit's sore, and I want to leave my feet altogether. I look to the accompaniment of Abda Parveen, the phenomenal interpreter of Sufi mysticism. This piece is entitled, A Drang He. Hey. Hey, ma. For Full Circle, this is Nikudesi.
1: Thank you, Niku. That was wonderful. Now let's hear from Jen Chen about the meaning of certain Chinese characters.
16: The Chinese characters for the word guanxi suggest relationship in the Chinese dictionary, which carries multiple connotations that are incompatible when translated in a single English word. The Chinese Hanyu Dictionary gives the term guanxi at least five usages. 1. The concept of guanxi is used to denote the existence of a relationship between people who share a common status group or are related to a common person. The old man stands directly in front of me, swaying with the motion of the subway car. Smiling hopefully, his eyes crinkle up, revealing teeth the color of antique ivory, teeth like my grandfather's. As soon as he stepped onto the train, I felt his eyes lock onto my Asian face and knew he would approach me. The costume of my spiky bleached hair and exposed tattoos meant nothing to him against the irrefutable fact of my face. I can feel the need rolling off him like a scent. He says something in a dialect I don't speak. I answer in Cantonese the only way I can. I'm sorry. I don't understand. Two. Guanxi is used to describe a way of behaving which is relatively diplomatic— involving practices such as regular visiting, reciprocal exchange of favors, and gifts. He reaches into the pocket of his thin and dirty windbreaker and holds something out toward me, his hands afflicted with some kind of palsy as if shaking invisible tambourines. I look down to see some handwritten Chinese characters on a ripped scrap of paper. I can't read them. I can recognize my name, and a few characters like person or small, but to my parents and my own shame, I'm not at all literate. I stare for a few seconds at the paper, trembling in his hands like a dry leaf on the end of a branch. I can't help him. I say, I'm sorry, in English. Immediately my body tightens with the fear of seeming too flippant, the typical American-born Chinese shooing away the fob with a mixture of amusement and disgust. On the outside, though, I arrange my face into what I hope is a look of benevolent understanding as he turns away from me and scans the train for anyone who might be able to help. 3. guanxi can be used as a verb, adjective, or noun that indicates a consequential relationship, which is cause and effect. He finds her across the aisle, a middle-aged Chinese woman reading a Chinese book. His eyes lock onto her the way they had onto me, and he shuffles toward her across the bucking floor of the train. He hesitates before dropping heavily into the empty seat beside her, and I burn with shame imagining his hesitation is because of my inability to help. As he shyly presents his scrap of paper to her, I try to imagine this man's life, how he ended up here, alone and depending on the kindness of strangers. The other passengers are watching, too, and I feel their judgment of him as if it were directed at me. They see a pitiful old man in dirty clothes, hands shaking, and on top of all that, his foreignness, his inability to seek help from anyone on the train except myself and that woman. I think of the lines that connect people and the lines that divide. 4. Guanxi could be used as an indicator of a causal relationship between two facts. I see a smile break his face open when she responds in his dialect. She reads the scrap of paper, her brow wrinkling as she tries to make sense of it. He waits patiently next to her, shifting his weight from hip to hip, tucking his hands into his armpits as if to hide their trembling. Finally, she says something definitive to him, and he looks relieved as he folds and places the paper gently back into his pocket. 5. Guanxi can be used as a term of bearing forgiveness. For example, if one person says, I'm sorry for being late, they may receive a reply such as, mei guanxi, or it doesn't matter. I silently watch as he leans back into the plastic seat and looks around, blinking, as she resumes her reading. The train rockets through the dark tunnel. Then I hear it, a small, slurred, xie, xie. He says thank you in Mandarin. And her brusque, not unkind brush-off Meikwanshi. It doesn't matter. But for me, it means the world.
1: Jen is one of our graduates who went to work for other publicly supported stations. She was managing news editor at KLW, and now she's connected to KQED. Our next presentation is from First Voice graduate Afale Coleman. He talks about rights for the last goodbye, as performed in his culture.
17: I've attended so many funerals in my 29 years of living. The total outnumbers my age, but the majority of these weren't just any kind of funerals. These were Samoan funerals. I have learned that the majority of people here in the US will lose someone and then bury that person within the same week they pass. But there is so much more work to be done with the Samoan funeral, and it usually takes about two weeks until the final ceremony. Just how much we have to resort to traditional customs really depends on who we are burying. If it is an elder, then that calls for more, the traditional way, and we pull out all the stops. But it's always about two weeks prep time, no matter who it is. In the meantime, Matais, which are our talking chiefs or representatives of our extended family branches, come together to discuss what we will contribute to the immediate family in mourning. This is a tradition called Love, lava lava, and it is to help assist the family with money, moral support, and anything else we may offer to help with the funeral. It seems like nowadays it's mostly money though, as funerals can be a big burden on the wallet. This has proven to be a burden on those who have to give money too, but it is all out of love and one day we will need the same support. When the weekend of the funeral finally arrives, that's when things really get busy. It brings the generations together to work and carry out the traditions of a Samoan funeral. Even though a lot of it has been sort of, I guess, Americanized, it is still what we are used to doing, and there is a lot of work to be done. There is food to prepare for chiefs and for visiting pastors and visiting family members, Sometimes we have to prepare lodging for these guests too. And in that work, I think there is a bonding that is hard to explain to those who are unfamiliar with our customs. Every generation has a role to play. I can't really break it all down in such a short time, but it's kind of like a game of what we can offer those in mourning and then what they offer in return for our generosity. There's a lot of giving and then receiving of gifts, but mostly giving. I don't know any other families that have lost as many relatives as us, and it's sad, but sometimes me and my cousins have admitted to feeling numb to some of these funerals. It's not that we don't care, but it's become something we are just so used to. The traditional ways have unfortunately been watered down over the years, but we always come together when someone dies, and there is something truly unique in our family's experience with that mostly because our traditions are passed on from elders, elders we no longer have. And more and more, my generation is becoming the ones that have to step up to the plate and keep things going, keep those connections and close family ties. But it isn't easy. Who will step up first? Who do we have left to look to for guidance? And that goes for all of us, young and old. I wish we would come together more often, not only in remembrance of those who we've lost, but to also celebrate who is still here. I have literally watched the whole generation die out. These were the foundations of my family's beginnings here in the States, my grandparents' generation. And with them went the stories of their struggles, their past, so many stories gone forever. They worked so hard for us to be able to still have a church to come to, even long after they've gone. And sometimes I feel like we take that for granted so much. I don't know where we would be if they hadn't worked so hard, so long ago, with enough vision and love to provide us with the land that we still have to this day. Our church's land, or as I refer to it as, my Samoa. We have had more than our fair share of deaths, but over the years the only thing that death has proven to me is that it doesn't care what your age is or who you are close to, it will come eventually. A lot of the deaths had to do with bad health, or unhealthy living habits, or just old age. But then there have been those tragic deaths too. Murder, freak accidents, and then the ones that leave us wondering, why them? Why now? Why so young? It is hard to explain to people how each individual funeral experience has had their own spiritual impact on me. Each time is something different, even though the protocol remains the same. And afterward, there is an ongoing healing process. Some funerals leave more of a lasting impression than others. And I guess that those are the times that we, who were there, must really cherish and hold those moments close to our hearts. All we have is now. We can't stress about what happened in the past or what will come in the future. We can only work on improving and preparing our lives for the better right now appreciate who we are and who we love while we still have the time to express these things to each other. I came to understand that our time here really is not forever except for in the memories and hearts of the loved ones we leave behind and the lives we touch while we are here. I wonder what impact the choices and moves I make now will have for the growing number of my family's future generations especially those that I will never meet. I have so many beautiful baby nieces and nephews. I feel a responsibility to leave something behind for them, to let them know that they come from a strong foundation. I will try my hardest to keep this in mind, as I am learning to use my voice for the very first time, and really trying to pave roads for my community and those that come after me. And so maybe one day, have one of my great-great-grandchildren, or nephews and nieces, That I may never even meet, look back just as I once did, and know that yes, someone was thinking of you. And I am passing on what was passed on to me. I hope you know that long after I am gone, I lived my life in such a way that you could always know. Someone you've never met cares for you, and I love you. Please, pass it on.
1: much appreciated Afolay very much thank you to those who've donated during this hour and thank you to those who will donate as we close out tonight's show please help us each donation no matter what the size receives the thank you gift of a complimentary download of women's voices including Angela Davis Gloria Steinem and many many more we are indeed in need, so your donation of any amount, large or small, is appreciated and treasured. Thank you. Thank you so much. As we close, I want to thank our API co-founder, Norman Gio, who along with Sarabu Betserai, started the first Voice apprenticeship program. They were the visionaries who believed that a program designed for women and people of color would help more underrepresented communities to have a place in media, as well as help building a community of many colors. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. I've been your host, Miss M. Freewill and Frank Sterling is our technical director. Joy Moore is our production consultant. A shout out to our graduates of all stripes, along with group 47 and group 46. La Onda Bajita is next. Please keep it locked.